Hello and Hello. welcome. Hey, I'm doing it. I get to do. I get to announce the masculinity episode. Welcome to an extreme edition <laughs> of Naughty by Nurture. Okay, actually, that's pretty good. You do that. <laughs> do that again. Hello. Welcome to an extreme edition of Naughty by Nurture. I'm your host, Andrew. <laughs> and I'm Joy. <laughs> and I'm Megan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Flawless. Did I, did that work? Did I, did I sound like a dude? Sure. All right. Tight. I mean, did I? Hell, hell yeah, dude. Do it again. I can't. <laughs> okay. um, I've expended all of my masculine energy for the day. Yeah, yeah, now all I have left is the regular masculine performance anxiety. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. So as you may have gathered, today we're talking about masculinity. Yeah. And all of the wonderful, very healthy ways of expressing oneself emotionally and thinking of oneself psychologically that mm-hmm. that encapsulates. Yeah. Yeah. Masculinity. It's a big one. It's good times. We here at N- well... NBN Cast at Naughty by Nurture are super pro-masculinity. That's... <laughs> well, all right. That's a lie. That a little. I mean, I I think there's maybe a way of interpreting that uh, that is accurate and convenient and true, and in that there is some value maybe in looking at a set of norms for all men and boys everywhere. Yeah, no. In in a sense, Megan is right, but in a different, uh, truer sense, she's wrong <laughs> and lying. <laughs> Uh, okay, so part of our test today is to actually identify what the hell even is masculinity. We'll get into it. What is masculinity? So masculinity, broadly speaking, is are, are there the, the norms and behaviors and roles that are associated with men and boys. And rather than it being inherently possessed by someone, you produce masculinity through engaging in masculine behaviors or practices or conforming to masculine gender roles. For example, like how you dress or behave or throw a ball or whatever. Right. Men aren't born in a state of having been wedgied. They grow up and are wedgied by others and then go on to wedgie themselves. I mean, <laughs> others. Exactly. You know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Look, like these, these behaviors aren't actually primal to men. You don't see like, you know, right. babies in the nursery sort of headbutting each other and refusing to cry in case the other babies <laughs> call them gay. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You got to wait till you're like two, three years old before that sticks. Yeah. Um, so these norms and behaviors are uh, practices of masculinity. They... They vary across different contexts of society, and they've also shifted pretty considerably over time. So in any given context, then there may be multiple competing definitions or norms or ideals of what men and boys should be like. And these norms and behaviors, etc., 
they're shaped by what we refer to as masculinity ideologies. And so masculinity ideologies are the the attitudes or the beliefs about what men and boys should be like. And those are typically shaped by gender socialization, which are largely through interactions with our parents, our peers, um, through the messages we absorb in like mass media or um, in our schools, etc. And so everybody's masculinity ideology is different, but they share some similar underlying themes, typically. I don't know if you have some ideas. Of themes? Of themes. Uh, well, I think it's important to always be strong and never weak. N- oh, ever. yeah. Correct. Yeah. Even a little bit. Not once. Masculinity status revoked. <laughs> yeah, like, I think in a lot of ways, the most essential characteristic of masculinity is its revocability. Right? Oh, it's the fact that you yeah. can't actually claim it. You have to claim it and also constantly defend it. Right. And most of the things that you have to defend it from have a lot more social power than you. Either by dint of, you know, greater status or just the weight of being an entire culture as opposed to an individual person. Right. It's nothing. There is nothing inherent about it. It's nothing there. You can't passively be masculine. It's yeah, no. The, the, that that the, has to be. I mean, you have to be doing assertive. it. Like the closest thing to an inherent quality in masculinity is that it can be taken away from you or sort of judged absent. Right. Right. And then, so like as a corollary, almost as uh, common or like essential to, you know, our masculine, the ideologies is anxiety about not right. Achieving the goal. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds shitty. It is. Yeah. I mean, but on the bright side, nobody ever tells me I'm talking too much. (laughs) (laughs) As you can probably tell. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I think that revocability aspect is really critical to keep in mind as it's used as like a a cudgel to keep people in line to, to maintain the social order. And that brings me to the concept of hegemonic masculinity, which isn't necessarily a description of any particular form of masculinity but rather um a a power dynamic and so hegemonic masculinity is the the sort of dominant masculinity narrative in any particular historical context and i think we're in a very particular (laughs) historical context right now right especially us living in the united states is like the the core of the empire right and i think it's really important to highlight that we can't separate what hegemonic masculinity is from our political institutions and economic structures, right? Violent systems of imperial domination have disrupted and reshaped gender relations all over the world. For example, you know, with colonization, the epidemic levels of rape and and disruption of indigenous kinship and communal relationships with um with forced migration uh especially with the slave trade right it's exported and shaped through the suppression of different masculinity or gender ideologies that aren't about domination 
And so I think our understanding of masculinity is a really, it's, it's really critical to remember that A, it's always shaped by our historical context, B, that it's not universal, and C, right now that especially for those of us living in the core of the empire, it's really distorted and it's very heavily defined by domination. Yeah, it's like the, the presence of power and the absence of weakness. Right. And I think that's especially important in relation to because, of course, one of the things that, you know, defines this historical moment is that the existing hegemonies, you know, the existing empires are all in crisis and decline. And we see a lot of that anxiety reflected in the ways that uh, masculinity and our concept of masculinity is period. Like, mm-hmm. I think that men are, or masculinity is sort of more of like an emanation of collective anxiety than it maybe has mm-hmm. been at at points in the past. Yeah, And there's been sort of a lot, there's a lot more sort of inadequacy tangled up in it. And I think it's, it's rooted in, and like you're saying, you know, sort of the political historical context, you know, being at the tail end of an empire. Right. So we're in a sort of a a really particular historical period. And I think, like you said, I think there's definitely a crisis of masculinity. And so we're seeing some heightened contradictions here. We're seeing the sort of extreme forms of masculinity trying to fight back and reassert domination and you're seeing that play out in a lot of different ways. And I think that's what I think that's particularly fascinating right now. And and actually that sort of brings to mind uh, an article that I had read recently about the idea of masculinity as a heuristic, which I'm really into those. I like heuristics as a, a lens for understanding world. And so So what is a heuristic? Oh god. <laughs> Can you define that cuz I'm so bad at definitions? How do you, how do you, how did we do it last time I asked when I didn't know what heuristic meant? <laughs> well, we just, we I just finally brushed by you. I, yeah, that was the first time. And then when we tried it the second time, I sort of tried to stumble through and, and then George came in and saved the day by offering an actual definition. But yeah, basically a heuristic <laughs> is sort of a method for problem solving, which is practical rather than theoretical, or rather it's got, it's like a set of shortcuts yes that you know aren't optimal because they don't they don't like emerge from first principles and aren't like you know nation of a problem but rather they're just like a set of learned or remembered shortcuts or pathways that allow us to process large amounts of information in a manageable mm-hmm. way yes yeah so they're they're sort of like they're, they're... shortcuts for seeing the world and right. like processing it so they're they're sort of like tools right they're 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 problem solving tools right so a collect collection of ideas and vernacular and is that or is it really just ways of thinking about something well so you could include something like uh you ever heard the expression rule of thumb sure a rule of thumb is a heuristic right like um sure like in cooking for instance um you know if you're cooking like a piece of meat right and you want to know how done it is you could you could get a thermometer and you could check and you could know like for an empirical fact the doneness of the meat but you know cooks you know often employ heuristics and for instance you could just sort of press the meat and depending on the kind of meat the tension in it or the the amount that it will spring back to the touch will let you know how done it is you know taking something out of oil when it's floated Mm -hmm. excellent 
So anyway, so this um, this article, the author argued that masculinity is like sets of heuristics, and depending on the context you're in, different parts of masculinity will guide or not guide your behavior, depending on how invest in it in masculinity as a captain. So like, for example, what masculinity looks like in an office setting might look totally different from what that looks like on a basketball court or something. Right. Like there's, unless the office is Uber. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so it's, it's a, a way of solving social problems is sort of a way of thinking about it. And if you think about it like that, it's kind of, um, it's alarming, some of the implications of that, because then... Yeah, you sort of have to wonder, like, what are the social problems masculinity is meant to solve? Right, exactly. And so, you know, a lot of people who are proponents for masculinity (laughs) um, (laughs) would argue that it's for... Like, who's going to provide for the family and the the protector role or et cetera. Like, the, the, the problem being that, like, this world is not safe. Somebody needs to protect the vulnerable. Men. <laughs> like, that's that's sort of the, the answer there, right? Well, Megan, as a proponent of masculinity, <laughs> what do you feel is the social problem solved by the masculinity heuristic? Um... <laughs> Uh, who's gonna dominate? <laughs> well, I mean, it does work for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's its main function right now. <laughs> wow. Well, the, hegemo- I mean... the hegemonic masculinity, that's certainly its sort of main function right now. I think a huge part of Trump's appeal is specifically his sort of uh, unapologetic masculinity like well misogyny really but i thought hegemonic masculinity was when your dad gets mad about the lawn (laughs) well that's true if your dad's reaction when he gets mad about the lawn is to send troops in to break up a strike (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) exactly but i think we could maybe zoom maybe we can zoom in a little more and and maybe sure. we could talk about uh, you know because i think the 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 ways in which masculinity makes itself felt makes itself known in terms of national and international politics and policy is is fairly evident uh but but st- still replicates itself and still bears itself out on a personal level on a mm-hmm. on an individual level i mean i think Certainly, for our listeners, that might be more pertinent information. I mean, it's a very well, just that it's it's. I mean, as as a man, it's one of the things that is difficult to grasp. That that thinking of the bad parts of masculinity and the the difficult things about about masculinity culture and toxicity as you know a a problem of the Trump administration is a really convenient way to not have to do the mental and emotional work with yourself to examine how much masculinity is, is hurting your own day-to-day life. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's it's just backwards, right? Like the Trump presidency is a problem with masculinity. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, and I think that's especially borne out in terms of the the notorious groups of supporters that that feel very comfortable being open in a way that they perhaps have not pre- recently, right? I mean, you're sort of red red pill folks or men's rights activists, the manosphere, right? Who men going you know, ten, their own way? <laughs> ten or twenty years ago, were really sort of fringe elements in a, in a certain way of mm-hmm. of culture, certainly popular culture, and the dominant form of masculinity was. I don't know, Kevin James, I guess. <laughs> um, but I mean, and I, I think it's particularly in terms of American sitcoms, which is a very common way that yeah. young men get their messages about masculinity. I would say the dominant form of masculinity was something like a recent example is Tim Allen's sitcom that was canceled. And was that Last he, Man Standing? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it, was, and, it was sort of like... um. You know, it's it sort of goes back to that thing that you know you were talking about. We touched on earlier. You know, masculinity is sort of, especially hegemonic masculinity, is in crisis, right? To mirror the right. crisis right. It, that's stretched across hegemony generally, and you know, you contrast it with other constructions of analogous constructions of masculinity. You know, like you said, the sitcom dad is both uh, a really ubiquitous and influential. Uh, model of masculinity and it's also a really easy one to look at right because you know yeah. there's sitcom dads going back 50 60 years now and they all sort of they they have a way of chronicling the way that teach boys to see themselves and teach men to see themselves you know so you have you know you go back tim allen and you go back to kevin james and then back to tim allen again and uh you know al bundy uh, <laughs> and you go back to you know, bill cosby archie bunker you know, right. all the way back to... I mean, the Honeymooners. Yeah, Ward Cleaver. Is that the one that was like, I'm gonna bang, beat you. Zoom to the moon. <laughs> yeah, yep. Okay, yeah. Yes. Just checking. Yep. Bang, zoom, straight to the moon. Straight to the moon. That's <laughs> See, it's, it's funny because it's about domestic violence. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <sighs> I think, I mean, I, th- I don't know off the top of my head, but my vague recollection is that the Honeymooners was even based maybe on a radio show. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I... But my, my, my thought is just that that it's this wonderful feedback loop of, uh, you know, when you have a mass media apparatus like a sitcom, it is something that is constantly iterating and is this feedback loop of... Mm-hmm of executives and writers deciding what they collectively think masculinity is defined by for the broad American populace, and then those cultural products influencing masculinity, and then Mm -hmm. the next, the sort of subsequent generation of executives and writers looking out over the landscape and seeing, you know, Mm -hmm. we're sort of at this odd point of cultural masculinity, where at least in terms of representation in mass media, it's impossibly self-referential man and it, yeah it's <laughs> and I th- self-aware i think the the thing that's really interesting to me about masculinity and media right now like there are a lot of really interesting portrayals of masculinity that i think are done in a pretty critical way but aren't necessarily always picked up that it's critical um like for example breaking bad sticks out to me as one of those where it's 
I mean, I think I consider it a pretty powerful exploration of how shrill and judgmental Skylar is. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, George. Um, I was going to say the like logical conclusions of masculinity or certain aspects of it anyway, and how eroding that is to Walt's humanity. I think a big chunk of the audience picks up on that and sees Walt and understands him as a monster. But then you have like these subsets of, of fans who are like rooting for him to just to embrace this beast mode or what is it i am the danger what is what is that line that was that, it that is the line yeah i am the but... one who knocks right <laughs> right and like horny ass bullshit <laughs> and like for... know, it goes back all the way back to that old ass samuel johnson quote right like he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man Huh. Yeah, that's... Well, and it's... In- <laughs> poignant. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's something else interesting about the Breaking Bad example, which is that very famously, at least in the industry, very famously, the the pitch that Vince, Vince Gilligan made for Breaking Bad is that it's... You're, you're watching Mr. Chips turn into Scarface. That was, like, that was the idea. Like, using these cultural touchstones, although I think Mr. Chips is probably not yeah, I never got that widely known. <laughs> well, I don't actually don't know who that is. Anyway, whatever. It's well, you should the... go back and, you know, have been a child in the 1970s. Right. Thank you. I'll consider um, it. But, but using, I mean, cultural touchstones of, you know, the mild-mannered teacher becoming Scarface, right? And mm-hmm. And... I mean, using these different visions of masculinity to sell that idea and 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 have it be really defined by that idea. I mean, and, and having the poison, the vacancy at the heart of masculinity as sort of a, a project for us culturally, you know, being like the fulcrum that turns the nebbishy provider into the gun-toting psychopath is like right. It's the entire point of the show. Yeah, the beta into the alpha. <laughs> I mean, and again, like it's 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 dressed up. It is very critically acclaimed, and and is a very thorough and interesting unfolding examination of masculinity. But does tap into that marketing, that way of conceiving of masculinity, like we said, unleashing the beast. Right? That really is. That's sort of Walt's mm-hmm. journey. Is not only doing that but i mean diegetically in the show coming to terms with his own desire to do that and his own interest in doing that yeah i actually want to i want to dive into this a little bit in sort of a less abstract way uh andrew what would you say are (laughs) your primary male culturals what were they growing up yeah uh well right off the bat without question Pete Venkman from Ghostbusters. That was like number one with a bullet. Nice. Uh, and, you know, to the point that even as a child, I felt very, I have a lot of memories of being a young man and very consciously wanting to model myself after that because, because he was a kid, right? He had it all figured out. He was doing interesting stuff, but, you know, didn't take it too seriously. And I mean, just he was a smart ass, I guess. And that is me now as an adult still, <laughs> to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think that that's sort of another another aspect of masculinity contained in that portrayal is that unlike the other Ghostbusters, he is cool, I guess. Like he's not a nerd. Like he knows about the nerd stuff, but isn't isn't nerdy himself. I don't know. I mean, I th- I feel like that set me on a trajectory that all the other big cultural ones I can think of were sort of along that spectrum. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think the way that that specific character is sort of presages a lot of the like the seismic changes that went on in nerd masculinity over sort of the last few decades. Oh, absolutely. You find people, you know, who were sort of trained to see themselves as ordained as sort of the losers in the masculine hierarchy. And running themselves up the ladder, in a sense, employing, oh, yeah. for instance, you know, in the case of Venkman, you know, ironic distance, right, and humor, and yeah. an insulator. Yep. <laughs> and that really, yeah, as you said, I mean, that's, that is sort of the mold from which every contemporary, I mean, I would say starting with our generation, and I'm, I'm quite positive that my experience is not unique, and that a character like Venkman, like Bill, I mean, and I feel like that's borne out just in, in Bill Murray's popularity as a person mm-hmm. and the sort of culture personality around Bill Murray, just as a human on earth, right? And right. The sort yeah. Of mystique like around him, like, like nothing no to do with the roles that be he, that likable, right? So it's just, right. it's, 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 it's mythology. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, and it's to the point now, I would say that it's sort of divorced from the roles that he plays. Like that, that people are sort of retroactively, retrospectively wrapping up the roles that he's played with his personality. And yeah, no, like and Bill Murray, I, I mean, the man, has achieved mimetic escape velocity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and some of it is by design, which I'm I'm sure initially was you know coming from a very sincere place of wanting to reject a lot of the trappings of fame another very you know a famous famous accurate thing about bill murray is that he has no agent he has a 1-800 number and a message service and just basically an answering machine and if you want him to be in a project you just leave the message like you leave a pitch and he'll call you back if he wants to he also, you know, is sort of famous for wandering into parties in Brooklyn and just sort of crashing apartments or weddings or whatever. And he has the sort of mystique of the chill guy. But my point is just that he, I, I don't know, I don't think that there can be any argument that, for instance, Judd Apatow's whole oeuvre is cut from the same cloth of, of idolizing the the ironic distance, the ironic observational distance of Bill Murray and specifically Bill Murray as, you know, as military man in stripes, as scientist in Ghostbusters, you know, despite being clearly, obviously unqualified for the positions that he's in, he is a leader. He is someone that other men look to. Right. Because like, you know, and it's sort of, it's an evidence of, you know, the social emanations of masculinity solving problems with masculinity in kind of right. a heuristic way, right? Because, like, one of the tr- one of the knock-on effects of masculinity is that it's really, really hard to connect to people, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. one of the ways that masculinity deals with that is it valorizes the outsider. Say more. Well, you know, it's just, you know, going to what Andrew was saying about Bill Murray, right? It's just sort of like, Bill Murray is sort of a folk hero for basically drifting in and out of areas as if he doesn't really belong in any of them but can't be rejected from them you know he's right. sort of mm-hmm. but yeah he's he's above yeah. it he's 
he's rootless but never unwelcome. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he's 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 got it all figured out, which means that he doesn't need to directly participate in he's it. He's independent. Yeah. Like he Right, exactly. He is alone. He depends on nobody. Only I mean, himself. Yeah. And and that's that's true of masculine heroes throughout American cultural history. I mean, you go back to westerns that it, are the all rugged about men who are Exactly, exactly. And and the heroes of westerns, that most prototypical American cultural institution are loners until they are compelled through action to not be loners. They are they're sort of loaned uh, out. Ah, that's from when their the woman comes to save individuals. Them. That's our role. <laughs> I mean, they do save. They the women are there to save men emotionally a little bit. They're oh, yeah. they're the lifeline. They are the avenue. They are the the, the avenue across again. which you are allowed to feel. <laughs> yeah, because like like the alternative would be feeling emotions with men, which, as established, is super gay. <laughs> yeah. So like, well, but I, but again, like you were saying, that's sort of the, the problem, of, or or rather, masculinity solving the problem of masculinity is yeah. that I feel like like that is very explicitly what in the seventies and eighties. Bill Murray and that style of comedian is in reaction to that that the the problem with John Wayne is that he is incredibly sincere which by the 80s is itself uh, an emotional state of being sincerity and and there is there is a, an element of sincerity which is genuine, which means it is it is a locus of connection. It is a place where connect, a connection can be made through sincerity. And ironic distance solves that problem. It, <laughs> it <laughs> sure does. because it allows you it allows you to understand the world and understand these human relationships, but not actually you know you're in much more control of the connection because you are guarding so much more of your emotion with ironic distance. Right, and then, you know, as ironic distance as sort of mechanism sort of disseminates and becomes more widespread and kind of reflexive in various cohorts of men, it, you know, it sort of gets demasculinized, you know, it becomes, yeah. you know, it just, it becomes sort of a weaker or, you know, less valid way down. to see the world. Yeah, and then what then you end up sort of, again, masculinity endlessly adapting itself, like, you know, MRSA or you get you get stuff like the new sincerity, right? Which is right. Where, where people are just so painfully earnest and honest as a deliberate aesthetic decision, right? And then right, you as an affect, yeah, right, exactly. It's exactly that. It's it takes the mechanism of ironic distance, which is to sublimate yourself into affect, and then it just reverses the polarity of the affect and calls it growth. <laughs> Right, it's it's rebranding. So I, yeah. I actually, I have I don't know about this new sincerity stuff. Can you like explain to me what that is? What's happening? No. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I think I think that there's an extent to which that is evident in the swing back is it- to things like Trump, like like men's rights is a little bit of a swing back from that from from the masculinity of irony um, is it is it can i just like is it an example of like the guy who's taking a selfie and holding his hand to his chest and is like women you're <laughs> you're beautiful and you're equal and all that Definitely. sappy bullshit is that is that george is that what you would consider a part of the new sincerity 
Well, like, it's it's the same idea. I don't know if I would associate it with that specific aesthetic movement. But in in an effort to sort of market yourself as less performative, what you are is you're performatively the opposite of whatever everyone else is performing. Right? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. like, like, woke guy is your brand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I think that these are all, you know, because it's, I mean, obviously, contemporary to Ghostbusters, there were Rambo movies getting made and Schwarzenegger movies right. getting made and, you know, Predator is coming out maybe even the same year. I don't know off the top of my head as Ghostbusters, but, you know, so you had, it's and just, then, it's you another know, way. And then, you the difference between the two, you had Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> oh my God. Right. right. But just that it's a way for masculinity to sort of cover all of its bases, mm-hmm. right? That like that that underneath the the Bill Murray, underneath underneath Schwarzenegger, underneath Revenge of the Nerds, though there are these these things that that connect them all, like control and and power and conquest, you know. Yeah, like in order in order to maintain this sort of psychic penetration. You know, it has to be, like, masculinity has to be able to present itself as accessible in theory to anyone, but right. accessible in reality to nobody, accessed by nobody. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, like, like if, you know, to, to if, if we accept that, for instance, the dominant portrayal, the dominant version of sort of ur-masculine, the kind of top of the mountain like we were talking about before a little bit, I feel like it would be fair to say that like Schwarzenegger and Predator or something would be would be an appropriate mm-hmm. one to pick, right? Very strong, very competent, smirking, quick-witted, such as it is. Yeah, uh, or, uh, you, know, you know, John McClane and Die Hard, for instance. Right, right conquering act but but even that though i mean even i mean at least historically in the context of die hard in relation to like like part of why that movie was made and part of why bruce willis in particular was chosen is that he's not hyper steroided out giant muscle man right he and you know he has a blue collar job he's not an elite special forces agent such as you yeah might find like it in was, the early it was sort of, 80s it was it was like a rebranding of masculinity at the time right in that context right. and then right. you sort of you get you know five or six diehard sequels later and it's just that's just what right. men are now because yeah. <laughs> because of the last 30 years of men being trained to be that right he has to he sort of has to have the ironic distance now <laughs> yeah the um the rebranding aspect is what I find one of the most fascinating things. And like, so within the, the research, like a, we would call that hybrid masculinities, right? So there's a hegemonic masculinity and then these other sort of sometimes subversive and sometimes that subversive gets sort of co-opted and um, subverted. You might say sub. Yes. Yes. Although if you get subverted by hegemony, I guess you're, Domverted. Anyway, (laughs) so these like these hybrid masculinities, these like Patrick masculinities. So like with the with nerd masculinity, there's you know I don't know I I saw some tweet the other day about like an anime dude that was like pissed off at all all these jacked and and buff people who like anime, and it was like. (laughs) get out posers or something i don't know i don't know but it was it was like there so there's like a, a rejection of a sort of traditional stereotype of what men should be like but is used to sort of 
dominate enforce the same power structure yes right like right you know because right. like that's that's the peril of power right is that mm-hmm. you know when you're fighting against an existing power structure a lot of people don't want to take don't want to dismantle it they just want to invert it yeah right well i mean that's one of the ways that masculinity safeguards itself from the mutability of of humanness, I don't. I mean that people move throughout different worlds and collections of social organization throughout their life. But, but if they're, I don't know, if you have masculinity available in every flavor, yeah, yeah, you can kind of dip in wherever you need to, and and everyone can find a spot. Every man can find a spot for themselves. But, but again, it just has that same. It has that same underpinning. You know that that power and control are important, but. It's just, you know, do you express it this way or you, do you express it that way? Do you express mm-hmm. it ironically or unironically? Do you express it through lifting a lot? Do you express it through, I don't know, a, a set of understandings of something like anime or video games? And then when, I, you know, you've, you've staked your claim, right? So then when you when someone encroaches on that territory, you've, you've made yourself the arbiter of whatever. Right. Like you, you are the arbiter of masculinity for your little tiny corner of it. And I feel like that's sort of what, that's what masculinity being defined by hierarchy and power does, is that it endeavors every man to become the defender of their own masculinity. And also demands that they do, because no one else is going to right. do it. Right. Everyone else is just <laughs> going to attack you. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very isolating thing. It really, it, it constructs you in opposition to the world around you, in, in isolation yeah. from the world around you. Yeah. And this, this actually, uh, go ahead, uh, well, so it it's bringing to my mind one of the most interesting things, I think, about sort of how masculinity is kind of kicking back right now and how I think we can really know that it's in crisis is the way that, like, for example, in the manosphere, men going their own way, red pill, like men's rights activists are actually embracing like a victim role. And they're positioning themselves rhetorically as the victims. And and I mean, I do think there's... There are grains of truth in some of are the you things. Den- that... are, you, are you denying the existence of misandry, Megan? <laughs> <laughs> I am not. <laughs> I am not. I actually... Oh, God. We can get into misandry next. <laughs> That's what I was going to do. Excellent. <laughs> um, but, like, I think that's one of the most fascinating turns of events right now is the way that there have been real gains by feminism and and these civil rights movements you know, like they're 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 real tangible strides that have been made by the by feminism and that's horrifying <laughs> for a lot of for men misogynist yeah for, yes um <laughs> and so a big part of that is like uh, of trying to wrestle back some of that control is recognizing that okay it's playing on that norm that it's not okay to abuse co-opting that language and trying to reposition itself so it's it's interesting because it's not a traditionally like it's not what we think of i think when we think of hegemonic masculinity because the that's often a rejection of the capacity to be victimized i guess right well, like yeah it, it, you know, like you said, it just sort of, it underlines the crisis that mm-hmm. hegemony is sort of experiencing. It's like, you know, you've heard of those studies where they ask men, 
uh, what percentage of the time women are talking and they all vastly overestimate it, right? Like they just think that, you know, women are dominating conversations when they speak, you know, 20% of the time. Mm-hmm. And like the the stuff you're describing here, right? Like the sort of the, the victimization, the self-martyrization of men on the altar of the modicum of social progress through feminism is, it's that written large, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's just, oh no, there's been even the barest amount of change and just the barest tiniest most incremental undermining <laughs> of patriarchal power structure of patriarchal power structures i am now the most persecuted human being who was ever <laughs> with no drama <laughs> you know and this this sort of it, it goes back to misandry right like this is sort of misandry exists right but the the, the thing is that misand like okay so this is like a three-part thing like a misandry exists but b misandrists are all men right because in order in order to be misandrist right as opposed to just not liking men or not trusting men you have to be in a position of power over men and the only people that are broadly in a position of power over men are other men Right. And sort of the the women who are invested with that power sort of subsidiarily. Right. So misandry is sort of social power being withdrawn from men by men. And because of this, misandry is sublimated misogyny. Right. And it's sort of yeah. like, you know, misandry is is real. Right. Like, you know, red pilling proves misandry is real in the same way that the phrase white trash proves reverse racism is real. Mm. Right. Mm hmm. I mean, I buy it. I'm I'm totally on board with this theory. <laughs> and I, well, I think what's really interesting is that, like, in really specific contexts, there can be situations where power differentials are reversed. You know, there are women bosses, but but it's not. Yeah, but those those aren't really aggregated to a social phenomenon, right? Right. 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 And I and so. I'm I'm still trying to figure out how it is we can focus more on the power structures and like the social structures of masculinity versus like I don't know taking an individual man to task for being which I mean I think that's also a part of the picture sometimes but I think I mean I agree I think that it's incredibly important to exercise empathy in a discussion like this and and in terms of conceptualize you know conceptualizing masculinity and how as leftists you know we who want to reorganize society have to take into consideration the feelings of everyone and i mean i can tell you that masculinity is no picnic for men like yeah. it is not it's it's not pleasant to feel like this i mean well it's, it's definitely like a picnic it, right it's it's like one of, <laughs> it's it's like it's like the picnic where the bear comes and you have to either you have to you have to grab the basket and run away and hope that someone else runs slower than you so that they get eaten instead <laughs> right right no masculinity is an incredibly isolating experience like it is not pleasant it's it it, it makes you feel alone to begin with and I I can see very easily how many men get, you know, react to our culture and react to the way that it's changing with fear mm-hmm. because 
they feel they have their, their you know you I, you know you figured out your place in it mm-hmm. right and anything that jeopardizes that means the unknown and the unknown is scary right and that fear then gets amplified when you take into consideration the long history of oppression and what vengeance may look like so the fear of losing your position of power gets amplified by the fear of the repercussions then there's also the anxiety of trying to figure out what it means to share power and what that looks like and all this time you've been occupying this position of power and it's been fucking you up right yeah i guess sort of what i'm getting at is that is that even men who are in power are victims of masculinity because they are for both embody that imaginary ideal of masculinity right like they Mm -hmm. they have to maintain that yeah masculine ideal but also i i don't know to, to to borrow an idea from james baldwin you know one of the horrifying things about being an oppressor is that you are forced to oppress and even if you materially are benefiting from that oppression you know you know that your existence is defined by inflicting pain on others and whether or not your masculinity allows you to feel that fully it's not a pleasant psychic experience Mm -hmm. to inflict pain yeah and what's what's really interesting to me is like listening to that and thinking about there is a a sort of a critical difference between the way that framing of men as victims of of masculinity versus the other like the victim complex of the men's rights movement, for example. Uh, oh, definitely. Well, it's because is a victim of feminism or women. Well, right, right. Because the the, vic- the victim in the latter case is masculinity. It's not the men. Right. It's not the men. Right. Right. They're defending masculinity as a concept, mm-hmm. not their own individual lives as human men who have thoughts and feelings. Yeah, right. because those only exist within the investment in masculinity as a concept. Right. Absolutely. Right. And and so I think I pick up on, or I've experienced, I think, at least some pushback on this idea of thinking about men as victims of the patriarchy. Like, I, I ha- I've run into people who do not take kindly to that. Um, and, and I get it. Well, like, it's, yeah, it's, it's really easy to, to read that as just trying to minimize the ways in which women are victimized, right? Like, right. right. And this, is, this sort of goes into, like, you know, because we were talking earlier about uh, stuff like Breaking Bad. Right. And yeah. the ways that, you know, it's a lot easier, I guess, or there are more acclaimed and public facing examples of nuanced and critical takes on masculinity. But there's also just that sense of can can we stop doing a deep dive into what makes men tick and what drives men <laughs> for five fucking minutes? Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's there is, I think, you know, there's a lot of validity to the resistance to, to recenter men mm-hmm. when the work is centering women, you know, like in, yeah. in, so in, so in context where the work is centering women, you know, mm-hmm. I can, I can understand that resistance, but it doesn't, you know, like you say, it doesn't change the broader point. We need healthy gender relations for everybody. Right. Right. Well, that does, it does bring to mind uh, a thought I had the other day and, and wanted to bring up about masculinity uh, in that it's a, 
you know, it's a sticky thing to discuss. It's a tricky thing to discuss because it causes so much pain. You know, it is responsible mm-hmm. for so much pain that it inflicts on others because it is something that has to be practiced. And one of the ways that it is practiced is by inflicting pain on others. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that it's also important to remember that it inflicts pain on men. Uh, and that, you know, while we can and should talk a lot about the, the pain it causes others and the damage that it does to others, I think that it's important to try to hold a little bit of empathy when we're talking about this, when we're talking about men, because because it results in a lot of self-loathing, you know? That's, that's another part another facet of the anxiety is that it just it makes you hate yourself because you are always in danger you always have this thing that you are not living up to it mm-hmm. and and i just think that that's a and and self-hatred is a lot more masculine than say being sad or scared or right i mean that's what's underneath nervous. it yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, masculinity is is a result of conditioning, and the hate that people have for themselves is 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 one aspect of that. And and I think that for men, especially, trying to have empathy for for other men that are demonstrating some more toxic masculinity uh, is important because I think that it's something that everyone, every man, is conditioned with. Hmm. Uh, and and I think that one of the one of the reasons that sort of quote unquote woke men or allies can can hate other men so much uh, to the point of, of doing it in a mm-hmm. in a really self-effacing way is because they're seeing something that they hate about themselves and i think that i think that one aspect of self-care when trying to organize from a left perspective is having empathy for others because it's part of having empathy for yourself hmm. so nah or you, or you no, George is right. George is right. Forget it. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it like that, but but he's right. <laughs> well, so I'm actually pretty curious. Like I understand my own journey with masculinity and why I'm sort of obsessed with it. But how how did you come to be critical of it and the role that it has played in your life? I mean, I think some of it is just being on the receiving end of it and. And starting at a young enough age to to sort of question the underlying hmm. reasoning of it, I guess. How about you, George? I didn't. No, I'm I'm still incredibly for it. <laughs> but no, um, the thing for me is that I realized from sort of a very young age by the way that the men in my life treated themselves and each other, and especially the women in my life, that. Uh, growing up, when it came to like finding male role models, which I had some understanding that I was supposed to have and need and want, uh, I realized that I was basically going to be on my own. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that effect sort of, it gave me sort of like a really inherent aversion and skepticism to sort of malehood and male socialization, mm-hmm. uh, such that I just like, I have a lot of trouble making friends with men or trusting men or respecting men, you know, on like a regular basis. And, uh, yeah, I think for me, it it mostly just came from like that, that initial sort of realization that the, the men in my life that I most counted on to sort of be that model for me were so bad at it. And like in that specific way, especially that 
it sort of, you know, it gave me like almost an ingrained uh, aversion and skepticism toward it. And then that just sort of like, you know, the thing about masculinity is that once you have a reason to be skeptical of it, it's really, really, really easy to validate that skepticism anytime you yeah. want in yeah. basically any context. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's sort of the thing that I find most difficult about what Andrew's talking about with regards to finding empathy for men is that, uh, you know, from the perspective of like the ingrained and reflexive skepticism, a lot of what I think, men in those circumstances would consider empathy i i sort of judge as indulgence right i think of like you know there's an extent to which we have to be able to understand the pain that masculinity puts men through but at the same time it doesn't like we can't let that release us from the obligation to be better or to do better Mm -hmm. and to challenge those pressures and a lot of i think you know i'm not talking about what andrew said or andrew but a lot of what I think of as sort of, you know, masculine redemption ideologies, right? Trying to make manliness great again. I, I think of mostly as trying to find socially acceptable contexts for the kinds of behaviors which are actually just abstractly bad and harmful. You know, like the pursuit of dominance, like the reflexive assertion of force, you know, mm-hmm. like the sort of you know, the incredible insecurity and permanent crisis that underlies all of it. Like, mm-hmm. those things are bad, and we should fight them. Mm-hmm. But basically, I, I think that it's very easy and common to fall into the trap of, like, like you know, the, the masculine ideology that equates bullying with power, um, and then power with righteousness, and therefore bullying with righteousness, mm-hmm. right? The idea that if you just direct that at people who deserve it, then it's good or it becomes uh, virtuous again, you know, despite the inherent violence of it because the political context has changed. And I think that that specifically, I think that uh, that, that gets indulged a lot, uh, both by other men and by, you know, often uh, women who are just, you know, either grateful to see people that are more likely to view as enemies or threats sort of coming under harm. And also because, you know, it just, it feels safe to be behind the cannon rather than in front of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting tension. I sort of bounce between both of your concerns. I mean, I guess I I would clarify and say I'm I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, that what's needed is to give the, you know, MAGA... (laughs) boys a break or something like to cut them slack i just think that i think that from an organizing perspective it's important to practice i think i think because i feel like i see some of the same emotional behaviors the same pathologies you know in in people on in communities on the left as as i do like like those sort of tenets of masculinity are are built on the same platform mm-hmm. you know sublimated like, yeah yeah uh and i just think i don't know i think i think my thought is that trying to keep that in mind and take a more empathetic view is going to be a more effective way to dismantle masculinity i think for the same reasons george is talking about 
yeah like, that that just trying to sort of turn it around and wield it against the right men that's just that's not going to work because you're still you're still practicing it you're still practicing the bad masculinity yeah well I, no i think and i i agree i think though what's what's sort of the interesting where this cuts is like what is what does empathy look like for somebody who's causing harm yeah like i think i think a critical facet of empathy in that context is to be able to be is having the patience to engage in a challenging way right mm-hmm. i think that the, like the most common sort of indulgent behavior is just to not say anything mm-hmm. yeah yes yeah i mean and i and i uh, you know i don't necessarily have an answer for that i certainly don't have all the answers and i'm, I'm not sure that what that looks like in practice does necessarily i mean that doesn't necessarily mean engaging with someone i think i think it's more an internal process for yourself like for me trying to practice this has been one of uh, you know if i if i recognize a destructive masculine behavior in someone else and it sort of gets my ire up and i can feel myself re- responding to it sort of in kind Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I want to try to pay attention to that process in myself and think mm-hmm. about why I am responding, why I'm starting to feel angry rather than sad or whatever, you know, yeah. just sort of, I, I, I kind of feel like it's, it's more something that I practice for myself rather than saying, oh, well, I'm going to go try to give this Nazi a hug or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just like. There's a couple of things I take issue with there. Uh, one of them is that I don't think that getting mad at someone else being an asshole is inherently masculine, right? I don't. I don't actually think that anger is a mass is a, like an irreversible no, masculine. No, no, of course. Like men don't own that. Yeah. And I also think that it's important to remember that sometimes, outside the context of you know uh, masculine behaviors and especially you know masculine like how they're idealized in masculinity ideologies those traits are adaptive, right? Like, it's important to be able to get mad. It's important to be able to own that anger and stand up for it. Confrontation Mm -hmm. is important. Like, we have to have that in our toolbox. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, all the empathy in the world isn't going to save anybody. Right. Right, you have to be able to back that up with actually asserting boundaries and being able, like, hold people accountable and, and all the difficult dirty work that goes behind that yeah definitely yeah and and like in general i think i think sort of the the main struggle i have with what andrew's talking about which is good and important is that like not doing that is so much more adaptive than doing that yeah like it's just it's easier it's safer and i think in general it produces better results for people at large can you can you not doing what not being empathetic yeah like not not trying to engage like not yeah like it's 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 not so much about not being empathetic as it is about not orienting the work inward so yeah i think that's it i mean i think that's where it gets really interesting is because i think that both need to happen and it's so hard to know when when to face inward versus when to face outward yeah. Right. So I mean, and I, I go ahead. Well, I, no, I just I, I think that I I typically conceive of it as as a process that's more inward facing. Because I mean, because I'm a man, because I'm a straight white 
man and this is the way that I have been socialized and I have absorbed all of this and and uh, you know it that means that for me that's what this process looks like yeah I think in particular I mean and again this isn't I'm I you know it's not prescriptive I don't think that this is sort of I'm like this is the way we have to do it and if this isn't the yeah. way then it's not going to work or something I just it's just well it you is... say that but also like what you're doing explicitly is you're uh, participating in the construction of a masculinity ideology, right? You're talking about ways that men should behave or ways that men should approach, hmm. you know, something and ways and, you know, sort of the set of obligations and forms of accountability that attend maleness in a specific social context. Like that's what's going. And, and I think like, ha- like we can't not have a masculinity ideology, right? Yeah. it's Because, because we have men. Right. And unless we actually literally (laughs) destroyed the concept of men and maleness somehow, like there's going to be masculinity because men are going to behave in some way. And it would probably help to have some sort of coherent notion of what the right way for men to behave is. But at the same time, like I also I think it's important to own. When we talk about ourselves, we're also, I think, in some sense, talking about other men who share broad common context, right? Like, I don't think it would be great for you to isolate yourself from all other straight white men in terms of, like, what they need to do or how they should approach a situation. You know, like, I think that Definitely. if if you find that these, these insights that you have into how it's important to react to certain, I guess, levels of masculine toxicity... <laughs> You know, those are things you should, like, be willing to say are good for other people. Or at least... I mean, I certainly think so. <laughs> but I think I think what I mean when I say it's not meant to be prescriptive is more... Uh, maybe, maybe what I mean to say is that it's not dogmatic. Mm. You know, if... Uh, it's just an idea, and I think that it is a helpful one. I hope that it's a helpful one, and I hope that it's one that can lead men to have some more compassion for themselves and others and to open up their feelings, I guess. Well, so the thing that comes out to me in in this dialectic, I guess, is the is what I see as sort of the reiterative process of unlearning some of this shit and also challenging it in ourselves and other people. Uh, Because like for my own journey, my own learning about feminism and, and what, you know, the patriarchy has done to me and others. Like it's, it's a continuous process. It, this has been, you know, I'd say I'd consider myself feminist to some degree for like, at least 10 years I've been on this trajectory of unlearning and and trying to find a a different way. And I continue to find deeper and deeper levels of conditioning and of, of just how core some of these ideologies are. And it, and it like, every time I find a new level of it, it like, it jars me. I'm like, fuck, I still didn't like, I still haven't undone this. Like, how have I, oh my God. And so it needs to go both inwards and outwards, right? So I, you know, it, it, it is really hard to figure out how to challenge 
others effectively? Because I think that's the biggest question is, is like, when, when we say with empathy, it's not necessarily that we're doing it gently or nicely or like politely, but that we're doing it in a way that we are really being thoughtful of what's happening and like what some of those motivational factors are and some of the, the barriers and, and like having a decent enough predictive model of what someone else is thinking and feeling to be able to most effectively challenge those toxic behaviors, I guess. Um, because yeah, some, yeah. I yeah. think, you know, the heart of rude empathy is attention and love. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And also importantly, like, it's not trivial to like distinguish between inward and outward focused work here, right? Because, you know, inward focused work is going to bleed outward into how you treat other people and outward focused mm -hmm. work is going to, you know, sort of radiate inward, you know? So there's, there's sort of like this, this ambiguity, like, you know, mm -hmm. you, 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 it's, it's like how you can't tell where Piers Morgan's face ends and Donald <laughs> Trump's butt begins. Amazing. <laughs> oh, incredible. <laughs> I was not prepared for that one, George. Um oh dear, oh dear. But yeah, I think I don't know, I guess and this is probably best to do as a whole other episode on its own, but that like the unlearning process is so much harder than the learning process in oh some ways. It's so ridiculous much how much harder it is to unlearn than learn. I, I kind of feel like that does really deserve its own episode, because it's so... Yeah. Yeah, because once you have, once you have like, a, like, an inertia, once you have a pattern, there, there especially, is... Especially if you don't have well, a new pattern to replace it with yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, and especially when... Like, so many of the patterns and so much of the learning that we provide for ourselves is done for survival. Yes. It's like, is, is yeah, done it's because just... we need to do it in order to get through our lives. And then, like, you reach a point in adulthood where you feel like, okay, maybe I can think about deconstructing some of these, you know, some of these self like these survival mechanisms and but i mean but god but they've been serving you so well for so long yeah. <laughs> why would you want to undo them <laughs> right right that's horrifying yeah <laughs> masculinity made me the man i am today <laughs> I, I mean yeah essentially like I, you know the unknown is always scarier than the known like and as you said george with without a, a really without a lot of confidence in something to replace it I mean, yeah, you're, like, just, you're feeling like you're, you're hanging yourself out to dry. And and you are, because... Totally. Like, and I think the thing that's most important there is just the constant external reinforcement of all the horrible shit you already think and feel. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, it, it, it almost doesn't matter what you think or feel, like, or what you want to think or feel, right? Because everyone else and everything else is structured around the expectation that mm. you see the world in this way or you know depending on the context the demand that you act as if you mm -hmm. see the world in this way mm -hmm. right and so that in that sense you know trying to unlearn it you almost, you almost have to construct an entire alternate word world to do it in yeah 
Yeah. I mean, li- I mean, like literally, that's the point of therapy. Yeah. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah, that's yeah, just like a providing a like, novel it is context, creating a space in, relation- in which to do that. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's one of the reasons that I, I don't know that that I often feel like, you know how. <laughs> how different therapy would look in a in a society that was just in in a, like a in a socialist society in a communist society right i mean like if if we lived in a world that was not built around alienating from each other so that people had robust support networks mm-hmm. like i don't know what if we, what if we lived in that space basically a space that made it possible different. to do that yeah well i think it's it's like the you know the, the mental health professionals in that space would sit next to the captain and then they would tell the captain <laughs> what the alien was thinking. <laughs> or feeling. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Well, I mean, anyway, yeah. I think that's I, I, I think that's such a great point and is is why I think that and I come back to the, the idea of prefigurative politics, right? Where we have to figure out new ways and and to interact with each other and like live our politics and that shit's fucking scary and we have to figure out how to do it with each other right and so like one of the the main tenets i'd say of hegemonic masculinity is like prohibitive of men showing affection to one one another that's like super homo right no homo don't want to be homo that's like in the u.s specifically i think that's that's not it's not a universal masculinity thing like not all of the country not every country shares this um no but ours is the best and we export it everywhere anyway so yes you might as well just say <laughs> exactly that that puts the hegemonic and hegemonic masculinity yeah. it, yep yep with all the hegemony it, it, that is, <laughs> yeah uh, um I mean, I don't know. How do you do? Do you guys? What's it been like for you to like? Do you, do you show affection to other men now? Like, how does that? How do you do yeah. that? Like, what was I mean, that I process just, like? I I feel like yeah, it's something that I try to practice as often as I can, but it's one of the things that is sort of isolating is is running up against resistance, basically. Like, hmm. you know, attempting to put my just to sort of put myself out there in that way and to to make it clear that I'm open to that kind of intimacy with male friends of mine but you know I can't I can't unlearn for them right like right. I can't un- undo their conditioning I can sort of only make it known that I am I'm there for them when and if they want to mm-hmm. yeah, sort of least, go down that road at least until we get way better at lobotomies <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but basically what I do is, uh, well, I live with my best friend. So, you know, the way that I express affection to him is that, you know, I'll have made dinner and he'll eat this and he'll, and he'll eat it. And he'll be like, this is really good. And then I'll say, you are. <laughs> uh, he hates that, by the way. I, I... He's going he's gonna to listen to this later and he's going to make a face when he hears this. <laughs> so... So, George, I think in general, one of the ways that it seems like you show affection is to just tease the shit out of someone, which I can relate to. That's what. what where did you get the impression that I showed affection by teasing people? Oh, I, I where, where would you have gotten that impression? 
Where would either of you have gotten that impression? <laughs> Certainly not from this podcast. <laughs> well, maybe I just interpret it as such because I... That's the that's the beauty of showing affection by teasing people is that you can also show contempt by teasing people <laughs> and they'll never know. Keeps them on their toes. <laughs> That's a real that's a real power move, George. Yeah. Is that is that a, a masculine practice, you think? What, like being jokey? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely but but ambiguously practice. ambiguously jokey? Yeah, you know, it's sort of like it's like loud stoicism. It's it's important to maintain plausible deniability at all times. Yeah, it's like you know, if people can pin down what you're thinking and feeling, then you're vulnerable. <laughs> and you must never be vulnerable. You must never be vulnerable. Ever. Oh, man. That's rough. I think you do. I think you gotta be vulnerable sometimes. I'm just... Oh, yeah? Well, I will exploit that to hurt you. <laughs> no! Oh, man. Well, trying to break habits slowly. <laughs> You got you can you can sort of work on one habit at a time. That that's a good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm saving the teasing for last. <laughs> uh. So to kind of tie it all up and bring it all home, you know, <laughs> Megan, mm-hmm. masculinity. Are you for it or against it? Oh <laughs> uh, man, I don't know. Being an outsider of it, like I'm, I'm clearly obviously impacted by it constantly um i i have a lot of empathy for men and boys like i'm not gonna lie like i don't want to live outside it i really don't want to live inside it (laughs) if that makes sense like it's (laughs) like it's it's hard for me to figure out if there's anything that i think can be salvaged from it like i think all of the things that are positive and beneficial um, that are empowering it seems totally unnecessary for that to be gendered first of all <laughs> like and that confidence yeah. <laughs> uh like strength it's like all these things are well they're just human, they're just qualities. human qualities yes exactly right and it's almost like masculinity is the collect this particular collection of human qualities and wielded mm-hmm. as a, as though one would a weapon against all right. men and women everywhere like well no, look Mas- masculinity is a collection of human qualities and that's why it posits that only men are people <laughs> right uh, yeah <laughs> all right so thank you megan for that very empathic and nuanced take on masculinity so andrew <laughs> uh megan said no what say you <laughs> uh yeah I, I i guess i agree i think no i think like i was just saying i think that masculinity sort of only is this weird amalgam of qualities and ideas that are only ever weaponized both for the people that benefit from them materially and the people that they oppress materially and and it's worth studying for people like megan and for everyone to have an understanding of for the reasons we're talking about but uh i don't think it's something that needs to be salvaged except maybe like in a museum (laughs) All right. So, yeah, I think we're all basically in accord that uh, masculinity needs to be fought mercilessly and sort of crushed and dominated (laughs) and stomped into the dirt and annihilated and destroyed. Driven into dust. Ruined forever and ever. Well, yeah. And then the discussion of if it's possible to do that, 
in a way. Well, that... like if it's if it's not, then we'll just sort of repress it and ignore it, right? Like we'll just well, we'll just gonna... we'll just completely <laughs> ignore <laughs> and sort of we'll just stop legislate just around stop all of the, the consequences, <laughs> right? Yeah. In order in order to continue our ruthless quest for power over. <laughs> I guess. Right, I think that's basically all where we're, where we're all at here, well, right? what, what, yeah. I was suggesting that perhaps the strategy is, might not be to try to destroy and control and dominate masculinity. <laughs> so you're saying that we should we should destroy and control and dominate the very notions of destruction, control, and dominance. Yeah. <laughs> and just fucking smash them into the dirt. I think yes. it's just one of those. Just completely tear them up. <laughs> Let the bodies hit the floor. All right. I think, All right. Well, I we solved it. Sick. So from- What an extreme episode of Naughty by Nurture. Hell yeah, bro. <laughs> so from Naughty by Nurture, I'm George. And I- I'm Megan. And I'm Andrew. <laughs> no, I'm Andrew. That's I don't talk like that most of the time, I promise. <laughs> Alright. Thank you, everybody. Tune in next time when we talk about uh something else. Something else. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Tie Dope. <laughs>